Salam, dear listeners. Welcome to History Speaks, a podcast that brings into conversation the Islamic historical tradition with contemporary concerns. Today, we have the pleasure of talking with Dr. Cyrus Zargar, professor at University of Central Florida in the Philosophy Department. Cyrus is a dear friend and much admired colleague. I'm eagerly anticipating our conversation regarding virtue ethics within the works of Jalaluddin Muhammad Rumi, the 13th century jurist, philosopher, poet, and really a polymath, better known as Maulana Rumi in the Muslim world or Rumi in the West, particularly focus, focusing on his magnum opus, Masnavi. His Masnavi is considered second only to the Quran in Muslim scholarship. Cyrus, Welcome and thank you for meeting with me and allowing me to share your work with a wider audience here at Maidan. Oh, thank you for having me. Most welcome. It is our pleasure, really. Cyrus, I'll start with two broad questions. The first will be about the purpose of storytelling in Maulana Rumi's work. And second, I'll ask you to speak a little bit about the biography of Maulana Rumi. This broad overview will, I hope, situate the listener. And then I would like you to share with us key insights from one story from the Masnavi. We would love to have more, but I think the podcast, the structure only allows for one story. Um, so for my first question, Cyrus, let's begin by discussing the advantages of narratives centered on imparting meaningful societal morals. This topic has come to my attention due to a recent ob observation a considerable portion of television content, though not all, appears to lack depth and fails to offer viewers substantial moral insights or models of good virtue. This is a profound issue because media seems to be the main form of input about life for young people. In my initial observation, I noticed a recurring trend in movies and TV shows where religious individuals are often shown that shown as unintelligent, thoughtless, and weird. This representation does not offer any meaningful insight into their faith or spirituality. Instead, it perpetuates stereotypes, presenting them as mere imbeciles and distorted characters, very one-dimensional. Then I observed not only, not always, but many, too many a time that children often become mere props when featured in TV shows, and you don't gain meaningful insights into the dynamics of parent-child relationships. Finally, there appears to be a noticeable surge in the presentation of anti-heroic characters on screen, contributing to the gradual normalization of unsavory behavior. I bring up these thoughts as an introduction, setting the stage for a deeper exploration of the, of the Islamic or Malana Rumi's approach to storytelling which aims to instill good morals and virtue ethics in the reader. Specifically, Cyrus, I would like to understand how Maulana Rumi incorporates ethics into storytelling. With a strong emphasis on virtue, Maulana Rumi's intention isn't merely to tell stories for the sake of storytelling. Rather, he uses storytelling as a tool to educate, inspire, and offer examples for self-improvement. I'm interested in learning about the significance of this approach, both in his time and its relevance for the present day. That's a, a great question. Um, it's it's also one that I've been dealing with now for years. Um, you know, what is Rumi doing in, in terms of storytelling? How is it related to, uh, you know, to his ethics? And the most interesting part of, of that question to me is, what does it mean for those of us, you know, alive here and now? Um, well, in terms of uh, what he's doing, so Rumi comes from 
a very rich uh, Islamic background of allegorical storytelling. And not all of his stories are allegories, but allegory plays an incredibly important role in what he does. Um, if, if you look at um, the tradition of allegorical storytelling in Islamic thought, I mean, there's, there's a lot there. Sufism has it. And it especially becomes in Persian Sufi literature, it, it, it really takes off with a poet who's about two generations before Rumi named Sanai. Um, and, and Rumi acknowledges Sanai as the origin of this, uh, of, you know, great um, allegorical, uh, spiritual storytelling um, in the form of, of uh, poetry, especially in the for, form of, of Mesnavi poetry, these rhymed, um, rhymed lines. Uh, and what Sanai had done was tap into the great allegorical tradition among the Muslim philosophers, such as Ibn Sina. In literary studies nowadays, very often allegory can be dismissed. The idea behind the way we see allegory is that, you know, in allegory, there's this one-to-one -one correspondence. So, for example, if I'm telling you a story about, you know, let's say Animal Farm, you know, each animal represents one different thing. The farm represents this. It's like a code. <laughs> but I would say that in Rumi's um, time, there was, uh, and in Rumi's writings, there's a much uh, more profound way of looking at allegory, which is that um, the whole world that we live in is allegorical. Everything around us represents something that we can't see. And not just one thing, but many things. So if a person has a dream, it's not that, you know, you take the dream and then you just interpret the dream one way. That dream could have multiple interpretations. A verse of the Quran can have multiple interpretations, one even somehow different than the other as you go deeper and deeper into those interpretations. So there's, rep there's re uh, repre representations in terms of language, but even the very things you see are, are methods of communication, you know, between the ultimate and human beings. And so there's this searching for, for meaning in all of the things you see and in all of the things you hear that makes allegory really powerful. Mm -hmm. So the first thing with Rumi's storytelling is, is allegory, because if you were to say, oh, no, it's the story that matters. It's the poetry that matters. He's coming. He's a poet. I don't think Rumi would be keen on being called a poet. You know, he had disparaging things to say about poetry itself. Um, there are times in his divan where um, he he puts down poetry. You can uh, William Chittick covers the, uh, discusses this in um, the Sufi Path of Love. Um, there's there's even one line where he's just he says something like you know I, you know I have been delivered from these verses in Ghazals, O King uh, and Sultan of Eternity. Muftailun, Muftailun, Muftailun has hounded me to death. Muftailun is like is like he's counting the, the verses, you know, because he was doing a lot of this extemporaneously. So he's, he's just sort of like, it's almost like he's saying, I'm sick of saying da 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 You know, he's, he's counting out the meter. Or basically like uh, you, uh, poetry for him was just like a form. It was a form. Yeah, it was a form. It's not the purpose. It was not his main kind of thing that he was doing. It's not poetry for poetry's sake, precisely. Or he, he says on another occasion, he says that, um, you know, I have friends, they come over. This is in the Fihi Mafi. This is like, a, it's a collection of sermons of, mm -hmm. uh, of Rumi's. He says, you know, I have friends, they come over, 
they want me to t- to do this this poetry thing, so I recite poetry. I do it to make them happy, <laughs> you know. Um, I don't think it mattered to him so much that it was it was poetry, which is odd. Mm-hmm. considering how ingenious his poetry is. Mm-hmm. Even if you just look at it from, you know, in terms of poetic skill, in terms of the uh, vividness and the imagination behind his images and the way certain things tie together um, in, in his, in, as, as we can discuss later, the multivocality, all these things, it's amazing. But he, I, that's not what he's valuing. So what is he valuing? In the storytelling, in the, in the poetry, he's valuing the kernel of truth that comes in through this this husk. You know, through, through that you mm-hmm. the, the you take out like the fruit. You know, you take you get you're getting to the to the the core of it, and that's the meaning, the ultimate meaning that he's expressing uh, through um, through this poetry. In terms of ethics, even ethics itself, you know, virtue ethic. You know, I, I discuss virtue ethics in, in Rumi's poetry, but it's it's not an end in and of itself. He wants the human being to, uh, um, you know, cultivate these ethical traits so that the human being can move beyond ethical traits. You see, because the animal soul, which is what you're balancing out with mm-hmm. with ethics, is getting in the way of things. So first, you have to you ha- first you have to master you know the animal soul. You have to master the self, but then you have to annihilate. The self you have to get rid and transcend and move beyond the self. Um, and uh, lastly, you know, I'll just end on this on this note. Um, if we have a minute, um, this method of allegorical storytelling, uh, because we were talking about today and mm-hmm. how it how it impacts us today, yeah. uh, it's difficult to do in modern art in contemporary art. It's very difficult to be allegorical. That's um, right. Interesting. Um, yeah. Could you say a little bit more about that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, you know, I, I think it depends on the art form we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, one of the differences between, as I see it, traditional art and contemporary art is um, that um, any sort of uh, sort of moral or theme, uh, it can't. It, it really shouldn't be. Uh, explicitly stated or explicitly represented, right? Mm-hmm. A, a movie or a novel or a poem that preaches to you the way that Rumi preaches in his poetry, it it doesn't fit what we consider art to be, which is this sort of honest representation of life. Mm-hmm. But one of the one of the figures that I've spent time studying, precisely because of my fascination with figures like Rumi and Attar, the Persian mm-hmm. poets is an Iranian director by the name of Majid Majidi. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, all his work is allegorical. Yeah, and people who know me hear about him all the time because I talk about him all the time, and so I'm sorry to, to bring him up again, but there's really, he's, he's a great example for me. I mean, his movie, um, Bida Majnun, which is translated as The Willow Tree, mm-hmm. is, a, is the finest expression of bringing the Mesnevi to life. The Mesnevi being, of course, Rumi's... Uh, Magnum Opus's great work, the long narrative poem, The Masnavi of Rumi. It, his movie, Majid Majidi's movie, The Willow Tree, is the finest example of bringing to life the Masnavi that I that you could that I can imagine, really that I've seen, 
the movie begins with the Masnavi. It's about a scholar who studies the Masnavi and it ends with the Masnavi. It ends with the, uh, I, I don't want to ruin the ending for those who want to see it, but it ends with the Masnavi. It takes parables from the Masnavi, like the parable of the ant, for example, mm-hmm. and scatters them throughout the movie. But if you were to watch the film, the beauty of the film is that you could appreciate it solely as a representation of, you know, a human life of one uh, one life in the in the contemporary sense that you would expect from neorealism neorealistic cinema but at the same time and if a person were to look deeper you know into the symbols that are in in this uh in this movie you'd realize that they're they're not actually quite symbols they're allegories and the film is allegorical Mm-hmm. Um, it's it, for those who haven't seen the film. I, this is not ruining it, but basically, it's the story of a professor who studies Rumi, uh, Persian po- per- Persian mystical poetry. He studies Rumi and Hafiz, and um, he is blind. Um, but um, he, through the miracle of of surgery, he he's uh, he he goes to France and they they perform this surgical procedure, and he can see again because he had lost sight. You know, when he was. Uh, he was in his childhood. So the potential to see was there. And, um, when his sight is restored, uh, his insight begins to change and die and his relationship with God changes. Uh, I'll leave it at that. But Mm -hmm. so I think it is possible, uh, to do allegorical storytelling, um, to do, uh, you know, this sort of uh, virtue building, uh, uh, storytelling that Rumi does, I think it is possible to do in the contemporary arts, but not just to copy and mimic the previous forms, but to mm-hmm. think like Majid Majidi does, to think insightfully about uh, how do we translate this to contemporary uh, media, contemporary forms, contemporary themes, because he's also concerned with, you know, Majid Majidi issues like refugees, issues like, you know, uh, people, people who have disabilities, all kinds of mm-hmm. issues that matter to us now. Responding to the world around us and exactly. so doing it in a very particular form. Exactly. So this was really, I think it's really helpful to hear that Rumi, for the uh, Molana Rumi did not imagine himself to be like a poet per se, but he used poetry for allegorical ele- 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 <laughs> storytelling Um but let's move on to our second question. And it's, again, a general question. And I, the question pertains to, like, I would like you to provi- provide some biographical information about Molana Rumi. Mm-hmm. Uh, he holds fame as one of the most renowned poets in the United States, right? However, an insightful article from the New York Times for a while, from a while ago pointed out that there is a tendency to overlook or erase Islamic aspects from both Molana Rumi's translated poetry and the... Un- and the understanding of his identity as a person. Likewise, more recently, when the rock superstar Sinead O'Connor passed away, her Muslim faith was deliberately obscured in mainstream media. It's disheartening to see that while she was celebrated for her fiercely independent and countercultural personality, her, ob- her obituaries overlooked her Islamic beliefs and the fact that she practiced her faith as a hijab-bearing Muslim woman, even during her concerts. Could you please provide information about Molana Rumi's training, his self-identification, and the importance of his religious belief in understanding his poetry? Additionally, yeah. if, you know, you could also comment on the harm caused when someone's identity is erased. That's a, a excellent way of, of framing the biography, to think of it as an erasure of Rumi himself, uh, as the, that uh, 
the, the there's an art there's a wonderful article about that um so um yes yeah, so first of all for those who want to study the historical rumi mm-hmm. um there's an excellent book by franklin lewis the late franklin lewis uh, a wonderful person a wonderful friend uh, who recently passed away uh, he was at the university of chicago um who had who has written the, the really the definitive volume on the historical Rumi, and it's just okay. called Rumi. I think it's called Rumi, Rumi Past and Present, and I can't remember the rest. But anyways, it's published with One World, and it's excellent. It's a big tome on, on Rumi, and you can, and he's gone through all the sources and and even impacts on uh, you know on contemporary culture. But a, a summary here, I think, would be in order. So Rumi is from. Uh, an area that we call, you know, Khorasan. He's from the um, east, eastern Iran, if you want to call it that area, though not part of uh, Iran today, uh, the contemporary Iran. Anyways, uh, he was from Vakhsh, in fact. Um, and uh, he was uh, born in 1207. His name was just Muhammad, son of Muhammad, but, uh, you know, they had all these Al-Qab, all these laqabs. So mm-hmm. he was he was given the title Jalaluddin. His father was called uh, Bahauddin Walad or Bahauddin Walad. Um, and actually to understand Rumi's biography, um, for the first part of it, you have to understand who Bahauddin Walad, his father was. Okay. Because it, it was his father who was a star preacher. He was a Hanafi preacher, a uh, Persian preacher. So he okay. was, we have actually preserved Bahadin Valad sermons. And I've actually been able to, for example, find themes in the Masnavi uh, in Bahadin's, uh, Bahadin Valad's uh, sermons. But there seems to have been a drying up of patronage for, for uh, Bahadin Valad. And um, as a scholar, um, as, as many of us scholars know, we need we need we patrons. <laughs> yeah, we need uh, to keep our to keep our scholarship going, to keep his school going. Um, and so he began to he took his family, including Rumi, and they um, explored different places where they might settle. So mm-hmm. they explored. Uh, they went to uh, Baghdad, Mecca, uh, probably Mecca for, of course, Hajj, uh, Damascus, and they finally found uh, patronage uh, in close to what's. Uh, uh, Malatya in modern day Turkey, Akshar, uh, a city called Akshar in, uh, in what is today Turkey, and then eventually moved slightly to what is today Kunya, which is of course now the the center for you know is where you would visit the shrine of Rumi and all that. Um, why that's important is this tells us a lot about who Rumi was initially. Mm-hmm. Rumi was like his father, a Hanafi preacher. He took over his father's college, the college that he established there. He he also inherited his fa- his father's followers. So when while his father his father was the head teacher and preacher uh, at that location, Rumi became the head uh, teacher and preacher at that location, and was an important person politically as well in the area. Mm-hmm. Now we get to the part of the biography uh, that's 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 been the stuff of legend. Um, it's the it's probably the most beautiful part of his biography is that. Um, you know, he is the sober-minded Hanafi preacher uh, who did not engage in sama. So, what is sama? Sama is um, for those who don't know, it's an ecstatic dance or a, a kind of movement that um, that occurs uh, along with the recitation of poetry in the love of God. 
Um, so, uh, like for example, the whirling dervishes, uh, which are which come from the Mevlevi order, which comes from Rumi, um, that is uh, a, a form of one form, one expression of sama. Mm-hmm. So he did not engage in that, and he didn't engage in the recitation of poetry and all that until a major af- event unfolded in his life. And that is the encounter with Shamsa Tabrizi or Shamsuddin Tabrizi. Um, so uh, Franklin Lewis has has done has really put forth a lot of effort in tracing who is this mysterious Shamsa Tabriz. It seems like he actually just was someone from Tabriz, so he actually came from Tabriz to Cunha. Um, but the meeting between the two, there's there's so many stories about it about what actually happened. Um, I, I, I have to pick my favorite since, <laughs> since we're, we're pressed for time. Um, so, okay, well, one of my favorite uh, versions of their first encounter. So uh, Rumi is sitting uh, somewhere. He's sitting, you know, in his, his you know, little uh, room open with, with an you know, open door and all these books surrounding him. And this disheveled uh, man who, who uh, really looks illiterate and looks like he doesn't belong comes up to him and, and says, um, you know, what is this? Pointing to all the books. And, and Rumi says, you know, you wouldn't understand. And then the man like points to the books and they all catch on fire. And then Rumi says, what is this? And Shams says, well, you wouldn't understand. <laughs> um, there's so many versions of this. It's it's a really great. I, I highly suggest you you read the uh, stories of Rumi and and Shams's encounter. But whatever it was, it was life changing. <laughs> and as the two got to know each other, uh, they learned from each other. They taught each other, and they became absorbed with each other. <laughs> and Rumi began to change. He began to engage in the recitation of of poetry. He began to engage in sama. Uh, Legend has it that his students were distraught. Um, I always look at it like this. I always think about the fact that if you're in any kind of very closed community uh, or any kind of tight-knit community, as a spiritual community tends to be, as they were, um, and your leader starts to ignore you, starts to seem to be changing and spending less time with you, uh, feelings such as jealousy uh, can, you know, crop up and... That's what legend says happened. Um, the, uh, they conspired against Shams. So Shams leaves two times. Um, mm-hmm. One time he leaves and Rumi can't handle it. He writes all this poetry and how he needs Shams to come back. And it works beautifully because Shams means sun. So he, in all the poetry, it's all about you know the sun darkening and the sun disappearing and where's the sun. And, and he sends uh, his son, to his own biological son, to go bring Shams back. Um, Shams uh, comes back one time and then disappears for good. Legend has it that he was murdered, um, but Franklin Lewis has um, done away with that legend. It seems that he probably just went back to Tabriz. Um, so uh, when Shams is gone for good, um, Rumi finds another person uh, to make his spiritual intimate by the name of Salahuddin Faridun Zarkoub. Um He's, uh, Zakub means gold, like a goldsmith. Uh, so he was uh, probably among the craftsmen. What was happening in that time uh, was that there was a kind of blending of Sufism and guilds and craftsmen. Uh, that's really exciting. It's the same thing to talk about later, maybe. Um, and uh, for 10 years, Rumi made him his, his deputy, his successor, his spiritual um, complement. Um, but then Zakub passed away. 
And that's when um, uh, Rumi became a spiritual, intimate, and forged another very close friendship with a man named uh, Hosamuddin Chalabi. Chalabi was the son of a, a, a leader, a, a fig, uh, an important figure in the local, uh, in Cunha's uh, Ahi order, which is an expression of Futua, another, uh, something we could talk about later, but very important spiritual movement um, parallel to Sufism and, and uh, at times related to Sufism, Futua. And so, um, anyways, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm wrapping it up, but, but this is the end of the story of the life of Rumi, um, as far as we know. So, um, you know, Chalabi helps expand uh, those who are uh, under Rumi's tutelage and in, in you know, in Rumi's, uh, you know, purview as a, as a spiritual leader, uh, because he brings in people from the Ahi order, from his own order. Um, but the other important thing is that Chalabi was the one who encouraged Rumi to write the massive, uh, you know, 25,000 double line. So it's basically, I mean, it's like 25,000 couplets, yep. uh, narrative poetry, the mm -hmm. Masnavi, the Masnavi Ma'navi, uh, which is what we're really talking about today, the long narrative poem. Now, before that, Rumi had written a lot of poetry, but it was very often, as I said, um, improvised, extemporaneous, uh, Po they're shorter, they're what Ghazals, so they're shorter poems um, on the theme usually of love uh, or, or something like that. Um, but this was a planned poem. This was a poem that he would, um, he would write in advance. And um, Chalabi was an important part in that. Um, Chalabi doesn't make it throughout the, you know, he doesn't uh, live till the very end, but um, as far as I remember, but, um, Oh no, Chalabi does live. Actually, no, I'm sorry. Chalabi does live because, but then soon after, when he passes away, um, Rumi's son, uh, and Rumi has passed away. Rumi's son takes over the order, and uh, that's when you start to really get with Rumi's son. Um, you start to get Sultan Valad. You start to get uh, the development of the Mevlevi order as an actual Sufi order. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the that's the biography of Rumi. Um, if I have a second, I could comment on your sec the second part of your question. Sure. I mean, uh, please, please. Okay. I don't want to take too long. Um, but uh, yeah, so just about erasure. Mm -hmm. Well, I think you have to ask yourself the question, who speaks on behalf of Islam? Mm -hmm. um, nowadays, this, you know, the stereotypical Muslim leader, if you're associating Islam with huge masjids and things like that, I mean, there really isn't one. I, you can't put you, Islam is so diverse that you can't say yeah. that. But, um, but I would say, you know, in Rumi's time, one one type of Muslim leader was the you know Hanafi, you know, Muslim uh, the Hanafi sorry Persian uh, preacher like his father. What I'm saying is that not only are these not only is Rumi Muslim. Rumi is a yeah, is a, a yeah he's a leading he's he's a he's a leader he's a community leader for Muslims he's a, a he's a scholar and a teacher yeah he's a mufassir the the Masnavi is a is an is really an exegesis of the Quran is what it's okay. called you know mm -hmm. it's called the Quran in Pahlavi in Persian mm -hmm. um, so it, it I would think of Rumi almost as you would think of what we would call today an Imam mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. he's he's that much he's that Muslim. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and people have been 
uh, uninterested in that element of his life, I think, because they don't understand Islam as containing a lot of these ideas. And that's the real shame of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I really love how you ended that. And it's sort of really interesting to me that, you know, when we tend to think of someone as important as Maulana Rumi, we forget that no man is an island. Mm-hmm. There was a father who nurtured this and then there were friends and family and mm-hmm colleagues who came into place who then further sort of helped nurture his spirit, his skill, his art. And it's too sad that we didn't hear of any woman that was his like sort of, you know, partner in all of this. But I mean, that's not to say that she was not, uh, that a woman was not, that the mother, the wife, the daughter might not have been. It's just hard to recover that from what we have as textual evidence. So now like with this background that the audience, the listeners already have. Let's look at a case study and let's look more closely at virtue ethics in Molana Rumi's poetry. Could we discuss the story of this tale of the Sufi and the judge from your first book, The Polished Mirror, Storytelling and the Pursuit of Virtue in Islamic Philosophy and Sufism? Could you start by telling the audience a story and then maybe the relationship between law and ethics in Molana Rumi's writing? Yes, and Another question uh, about that story. Once you just tell us the story. Okay, I'll tell you the story. I'll I'll do a quick, quick version. Um, So, well, before I tell the story, I I need to tell the audience who hasn't read the Masnavi. Mm -hmm. uh, The way stories work in the Masnavi is... um, this is a bad, bad metaphor, but it'll work for now. Sort of think of like Russian nesting dolls type thing. (laughs) It's like... (laughs) So, um, you know, Rumi will open up a story, okay... And then within that story, open up either another story or uh, some small point, maybe a discussion of a hadith or a discussion of a verse of the Quran. And then he'll have to close that one. He'll close the other one. And then he'll come back to the main one. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in the Masnavi, there are small stories and there are big stories. Okay. That is to say, there are sometimes small stories that are contained within other stories. Mm -hmm. And then there's stories that contain other stories. Okay. The story of the Sufi and the judge is a big story. It's Mm -hmm. a, it's a story that contains other episodes and things in it. It's one of the major accounts and it's in the end. It's toward the end of the Masnavi. It's in the, it's in the sixth defter, the sixth sixth book of six. Um, Okay. So the short version. Sounds good. Once upon a time, uh, there was a sick man. Uh, and uh, as was the custom at that time, the doctor comes to his house, visits him. Now, the doctor realizes that this man is going to die. He's that sick, (laughs) but doesn't want to expedite his death by, for lack of, as the youngsters say, freaking him out. He doesn't want to scare him. He he, um, wants him to enjoy the end of his life. And so the doctor gives him, he says, the um, what you need, the only thing that will make you better is that whenever you have anything, any impulse, anything you want to do, do it, right? Um, now, the sick man takes this very literally. He feels that he has to do absolutely any impulse that comes to him, that anything he wants to do, he has to do at that moment. So he tells the doctor, go, and then he decides he has the impulse to take a walk by the riverbank. He's walking by the riverbank and he sees a Sufi the Sufi is making wudu, the ablution, where you, you know, involves washing for prayer and for uh, purity, for spiritual, for ritual purity. He he's washing, and the sick man sees the Sufi washing and has an impulse to slap him really hard on the back of the neck. 
So now remember, the sick man feels like he has to do whatever impulse comes to him. So he um, slaps the Sufi uh, hard on the back of the neck. Now the Sufi uh, is so enraged by this, the way that the way that um, Rumi describes it, he says that the sick man has this, um, uh, the Sufi has this urge to um, rip out all of the mustache hairs of the sick man. But the <laughs> Sufi knows better than to do this. He knows that if he were to do something and the sick man were to die, he would be liable and he might be punished um, or even executed. Um, so instead he drags the, the, the sick man to the judge and he demands that the judge, uh, uh, you know, give him his due, which okay. for the Sufi is one of two things. Either the, the man, because the Sufi knows his, his law pretty well. Either the, the sick man has to be um, carry, uh, paraded around the city and em embarrassed by being put on a donkey and carried around mm -hmm. town. Or an equal, you know, strike. You know, he has to be struck the way that the, the Sufi himself was struck. Now the judge uh, looks at the situation. He looks at the sick man. And he determines that, this, that the man is too ill uh, to be able to tolerate a strike. And he asks him, he says, well, how much money do you have? He asks the, the, the sick man, how much money do you have? And he says, I have no more than, than six dirhams to my name. Well, he says, you know, you're going to need some of that to live. You're going to need, you have to buy food and all that. So he determines that uh, his, his, his judgment is that the sick man give the Sufi half, three dirhams, and that's the end of it. Uh, the Sufi's enraged. Uh, he feels that that um, justice has not been done, and um, he he brings uh, evidence, he, he, you know, to that uh, you know to that effect. But the sick man's happy because uh, he he realizes how easily how easy it is to slap someone on the back of the neck and and have a light sentence. So now he has the urge to slap the judge. He slaps <laughs> the judge, and he says, "You know what? Here, you can take my other three dirhams. I don't need any money because I've been cured." You know, I've now that I've slapped the judge, I've I've been cured. So he gives, you know, he gives away his money. He leaves, and then what ensues is this really fascinating discussion between the Sufi and the judge, where the Sufi tries to understand the judge's um, position, <laughs> and the judge is explaining to him the nature of human suffering based on the fact that he himself was slapped, and while it bothered him, he says, <laughs> "Deep down, I wasn't moved," and that's really the end of the story. <laughs> so that's the that's the crux of the narrative. Okay. So in like the story obviously is fascinating and, and I loved how you explained the whole Russian doll situation in the Masnavi. I think that's a really helpful sort of thing for the audience to know. But I was especially interested in the role that compassion plays in the story and the role that it plays compassion meaning plays in social justice and the, you know, with the lasting impact of inter enlightenment era, uh, which has ele elevated rationality to the highest echelons among intellectual faculties. Um, the incorporation of compassion within the narrative of the Sufi and the judge signifies crucial insights into the boundaries of rationality. And it underscores the necessity for additional virtues such as, you know, such as compassion within the realm of legal proceedings. Mm -hmm. uh, so what can you tell us about the role that compassion played? Yes, um, I, it's, it's, it's a great question. What interested me in the story mm -hmm. was exactly uh, the, this element of, if you, want, if you want to call it compassion, but just the, the fact that we are seeing uh, Islamic law in action in this story, right? Mm -hmm. So Rumi is telling a story to his contemporaries, 
And to them, this must seem the way judges uh, either do practice or should practice, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, it's very different from even the phrase Islamic law, mm -hmm. right? Because Islamic quote-unquote law or Sharia is epitomized in the story by the Sufi. The Sufi uh, is coming at him with, with what he knows from the books. In the books, when a person hits you, this. And there is no leeway, there is no maneuvering, there is nothing to it. But the Sufi isn't a judge. In fact, the Sufi isn't a very good Sufi, really, by the way, because <laughs> yeah. he's supposed to practice what's called futuwa. Yeah. Futuwa, uh, young manliness, Javan Mardi, as it's called in, in Persian, um, it, it's the, it, it's, there, it involves a lot of virtues. Um, but one of them is to uh, be forgiving and overlook uh, when other people harm you, you know, to, to let it go, not mm -hmm. hold things in to be, uh, instead of, uh, you know, the, so instead of showing futua, the Sufi is obsessed with what we could call legalism in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, but if you look at the actual representation of, of God's mm -hmm. law or God's commands, that's the, the, the judge. And how does the judge look at the situation? How does he deal with the situation? He does it on a very personal level. Mm -hmm. He wants to know, uh, who this man is, the accused, what, not just what happened, but who, what, you know, okay, you're guilty, but who are you? What made you do this? What can you tolerate in terms of a punishment? Mm -hmm. If I strike you, will you be okay? If I take your money, will you be okay? Mm -hmm. You see the care? Yeah. He's a caring person. He's invested. And it's not the kind of caring, because this is I, this is getting to something I'm working on now, this topic mm -hmm. of I'm working on empathy. It's not this kind of something that we would call empathy or anything like that. Because he's he he's not putting it he it's he's he's managing to remain distant. Mm -hmm. So and and you're right. So so compassion is an incredibly important part. But another important part of this is the recognition in the story. Everybody has a perspective that should be valued. Mm -hmm. So there's no figure in the story who you'd say is completely right or wrong. You can understand the sick man's actions when you understand that the poor man thinks his, li his life is on the line here by doing these actions, mm -hmm. right? He's, he's literal and he's a little bit unwise and unintelligent, fine, but you can understand his perspective. The Sufi, you can completely understand his perspective. The man was just minding his own business and he gets hit, you know, he, he, it's, it's easy to say that someone should be forgiving, but until you're in that position, right, where you've been just for no reason, uh, you know, assaulted, it, it's, 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 you know, it's not, it, it's not the same thing. So, and then you have the judge and the judge, he's in a way he's us, but then what Rumi does, which is brilliant is he brings him into the story by having him being, be slapped himself. Right. Yeah, so he goes cool. from, yeah, he goes from being this objective observer to being just dragged into all the affairs. And that's what I, what I point to um, when it comes to Rumi's ethics, where I say there's a kind of um, narrative ethics um, uh, going on in the story, which is uh, an ethics that considers everyone's particular situation, mm -hmm. right? It, it meets people where they are. And there's also in the story, I'll, I'll end on this, um, there's also in the story a hint of what you're going to see a lot more of in later um, literature with the rise of the novel, I, I argue, a kind of um, uh, polyphony, uh, as Bartin called it, the um, blending of different perspectives, right? Mm -hmm. So that 
you realize that the the, the world we live in is um, is dialogical. It's it's um, you know you have your experience and I have my experience and we come together and the great author can represent all of them together without imposing her or his uh, his own voice. Now that's the part that's missing. Rumi does impose. Uh, his his own voice at the end. I mean, he does come and tell us in a way, but it's it's often hard to tell where Rumi is in the story. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, is he the, is he the judge, and, and is this the voice of the judge or is this the voice of Rumi? It's not always clear, by the way. But yeah, I I think um, it's very complex, and it it uh, to me it's a beautiful example of the way virtue ethics and um, uh, you know the courtroom drama and Islamic law were, were practiced in this time. <laughs> I mean, again, it goes back to what we started out speaking, which is that, you know, Rumi's voice, I suppose, is there because he is using storytelling for a particular purpose. So therefore, I guess at some point he has to insert his voice. So uh, now let's just move to my last question. And I think this also might be helpful for the listeners to sort of understand um, Sufi poetry, your first book is called The Polished Mirror. Could you help us understand the use of the term and its significance and connect it back to Molana Rumi and the Masnavi? Uh, happily. Um, so uh, I came upon the title The Polished Mirror l- later in, in writing the book. <laughs> and when I came, I came upon it as a way of describing um, what the the ten different authors? There's more than ten. There's like um, like 11, uh, twelve twelve different authors and ten chapters. What they um, what brought them all together? Mm-hmm. So the book is divided into two halves: um, philosophy and Sufism. Right? It deals with Islamic virtue ethics from these two angles: mm-hmm. from from the falsafa tradition, the, you know, that starts with the translation of Greek texts into Arabic, and not just Greek, uh, you know, uh, from uh, Sanskrit and Persian, all kinds of things were making their way into Arabic. Um, so, uh, the philosophical or falsafa tradition, um, and on the other hand, Sufism, uh, the, the the science called Elm Tasawwuf that that also developed um, in in this time period that I'm interested in. And what I began to realize is that when it came to uh, ethics, virtue ethics, uh, the the cultivation of of good character traits and human perfection, the uh, mm-hmm. achieving human perfection, what they shared was this image of the mirror, which is, um, it's probably best exp- uh, told by um, by Ghazali. Um, so Abu Hamid Ghazali has this story. I probably don't have time to get into the story, but uh, the point of the story uh, is uh, that um, you achieve uh, virtue not by acquiring good traits, Okay. Or you achieve knowledge in his in his version of knowledge, not by acquiring bits of knowledge, but by tearing things down and getting rid of what you don't need, right? By cleaning the heart, by polishing the heart, and then reflecting uh, the ultimate, reflecting the the the, you know, the attributes of God, right? Mm-hmm. Now, in the philosophical tradition, it's a bit different. The reflection that happens is a reflection between. Um, is when the um, human rational soul can reflect the active in- intellect. But still, this idea of uh, ref- of being reflective and passive and receptive, right? And the, even the image of the mirror itself is repeated so often that it mm-hmm. brought everything. 
together for me. And I began to realize how much uh, and how often philosophers were borrowing from uh, from Sufism and from Sufis, and or, or even in some ways having dual you know affiliations, working on on falsafa and tasawwuf, working on both sometimes. And then on the other hand, how how much uh, uh, Sufis were uh, working with ethics from the philosophical tradition. There was a lot of intermingling going on. So that that's what led to the um, to the title of the Polish Mirror. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Cyrus, and thank you for speaking with Medan's History Speaks podcast. Personally, I'm appreciative of the opportunity to engage in this conversation with you. I'm confident that the audience will derive both enjoyment and significant insights from our discussion. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you.